Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, everybody out there, and welcome to No Script, No Problem on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of unscripted television like never before, with insight from some of the best in the business of reality TV, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, true crime, and much more. From Bar Rescue to The Last Dance, to Love is Blind, to RuPaul's Drag Race. If it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television with shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, Outdaughtered, The Rachel Zoe Project, Backyard Takeover, and Friday Night Tykes, among my credits. Each week, I talk to the talented people who have made unscripted TV, documentaries, true crime, and game shows not just something you watch, but a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy No Script, No Problem, please subscribe and rate the show. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it on Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. All right, let's get started. Today, my guest is the president and chief strategy officer at Asylum Entertainment Group, which is an L.A.-based incubator and accelerator focused on building creative companies and partnerships across the content spectrum. Asylum and the companies under their banner include the content group, Clovis Entertainment, and the recently announced audio company, Oddity. She has been an executive producer on such projects as To Roam for Love on Bravo, in Ice Cold Blood with Ice Tea for Oxygen, Flipper Flop Nashville for HGTV, Boss Up on We Speed is the new Black on Moto Trend, Nate and Jeremiah by Design for TLC, and a 30 for 30 documentary that I really enjoyed on ESPN, Trojan War. Please welcome Ryan Lochner. Ryan, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. As Chief Strategy Officer at Asylum, I think we just need to establish right away for the audience what do you do? That's such a great question. Um, I always say that they give you a big title and they want you to do a little bit of everything, including yeah, the floors. I bet. Um, which, which I'm happy to do. I'm happy to roll up my sleeves and get into anything. Yeah. But the main thrust of that is just, you know, under the Asylum banner now, we have a number of different companies that have a, a, a number of different focuses. Um, the content group's probably the one that's the most um, relevant for our conversation on, you know, non-scripted and documentary. Um, but we've got a lot of different companies under our banner, and it's really important to us that we are cultivating a culture that is really even um, and equitable across all of them. So a lot of my day-to-day work is about um, some of the things that probably sound pretty boring and back office but they're all related to company culture, um, how our employees and partners feel working at our company, what our outward-facing strategy is going to be, uh, what kind of projects we'll take versus what kind we won't, um, and then ultimately how we want to grow uh, grow the company um, in the near, medium, and long term. Okay, great. So a lot of big picture stuff, but then once things do get decided, you get down to the nitty gritty. You use that word culture. We, we've we talked a lot, you know, with the Black Lives Matter movement, with COVID, that word culture has come up a lot. How has the culture at Asylum changed in the last several months? Well, I think that the the culture at Asylum hasn't necessarily changed in the last several months. I think that the conversation has maybe come more to the surface um, just about, you know, equity, diversity and inclusion issues. I think that a lot of companies are having those conversations right now. We're looking at our staff, both the permanent staff that we have at Asylum and all the companies under the Asylum banner, but also the freelancers uh, we, who we work with. I think that we do a, a pretty good job um, at making sure we have Uh, a a number of different kinds of diversity, gender diversity, racial diversity, also a cognitive diversity that I think is is, is really super important. And um, having a cognitive diversity actually makes it a lot easier to have uh, a diverse culture and environment um, all the way around. So I think that we're having that conversation maybe more uh, frequently, but it's been something that's been quite important to us since we took, uh, we were able to reacquire the company from legendary entertainment in 2018 and actually launch as Asylum Entertainment Group and the content group, um, our decision to take the company back and move in a, in a different direction had a lot to do with the kind of company we wanted to see in the world. 
uh, we recognized that, you know, launching in 2018, we were going to be launching back into an industry that looked very different from the one we were purchased, acquired in in 2014. So we wanted to make sure that we were we were putting our best foot forward and really putting our partners forward. Um, and when that is core to your culture, um, it requires you spend a lot of time thinking about diverse, diversity and inclusion. And there's a lot of stress that goes with the types of decisions you make. I've talked to showrunners about creative stress and network executives about the stress of green lighting what shows and when shows fail. What are the types of stresses that you experience when it comes to establishing a culture? Yeah. And I, you know, the one thing I would say is I think that running a company, there are a lot of ways in which running a company is like running a, a very big show. So when you're thinking about, you know, when you're in that showrunner position, you do still have to make sure that everyone is working decently well together, well enough together. Maybe they're not best friends. Maybe they're not the ones who hang out uh, at crew drinks, but you have to make sure that all of those departments are working together in a way that is going to ultimately put the best thing forward on the screen. In a company, it's not that different. Um, we've got different departments. They've got their, they've got different interests. We pay them to have different interests. So it's not surprising that sometimes those things clash. And I think that a big balance, um, you know, when, when, when making sure that that um, culture is cohesive is on your plate, it's really about balancing out um, how much autonomy you give to each individual person, right? Um, yeah. And then how much how much cohesion you want, how much you want them to sort of toe, quote unquote, toe that company line, right? So it's about yeah. really making sure you articulate what's important to the company, but then give people um, the ability and the platform to, to raise dissent. Um, I find that a lot of culture, uh, cultural problems actually boil down to things being too uh, homogenous. Um, not this idea that you're putting a bunch of people together and, oh, that's going to be really combustible because they're really different. A lot of business problems, company problems come from the fact that you have too many people who have the same exact thought. So they've got the same blind spots. And as a company, as you move forward, you suddenly fall into these, these potholes and you think, but I have this really fantastic group. They work really well together. Why did this happen? And it happened because you didn't have someone who's coming from an, a, a different perspective to say, wait, this is a blind spot. That show is not going to resonate well. Or um, this, you were trying to sell into the UK and that's not how their culture works. So when you have too many people who are just willing to say yes to you or who you like, you want to hang out with and have drinks with, um, you're not necessarily running the the best kind of uh, business ecosystem. Because you are very much on that business side, I want to ask you about a couple of things that have been announced recently. You know, the SVOD, the streaming video on demand side of our business is at, you know, blowing up and you have CBS All Access, which has announced they're going to become Paramount Plus and, you know, entering the SVOD, you know, madness, right? And then you also have Discovery Communications now, you know, creating this Discovery Plus. Um, and they are also going to be taking on, you know, the the Netflixes and the Amazons and the Hulus and the Peacocks and the HBO Maxes and the Quibis and the YouTubes and the Apple TVs of the world. And so I'm curious from, from your POV, are we entering this world where are, is there ever too many streaming platforms? You know, I think it's such an interesting question, but I, and I, and I know that it gets a lot of, um, I know it gets a lot of headlines, um, mainly because people, people want the answer to that question. And what I'll say is maybe, um, and the reason I say maybe is because I actually think that it's a slightly different question. Um, people are asking whether or not there's too much. Are people going to have cable and do all these subscriptions? I think the answer on cable is that we see a lot of those cable numbers falling. So we're probably getting an indication there, right? Yeah. Um, how much money people are willing to spend on subscriptions, I think is a really tough, um, it, that's a really tough nut to crack. And the reason is subscriptions are relatively, still relatively new when you think about it. Um, or these kinds of streaming subscriptions, but you have um, every day more and more people sort of joining the workforce who are in the millennial and the Gen Z groups. They are heavily reliant on, on subscriptions. They much prefer them. So it's really tough to say, Is it? are they going to spend $30? Are they going to spend 50? Are they going to spend 150? And if you don't know that answer, it's, it's really tough to know whether or not you have too many SVODs in that space, right? Um, sure. Each one of those um, SVODs will say, 
well, we have a different, um, you know, value proposition. We're a different brand. We we have, you know, our content resonates in a different way. And so that's why we're going into this space. But the truth is they're going into that space because the space that they're coming out of, the cable space, is is changing dramatically, I think is probably the euphemism uh, that I'll say there. Sure. Um, and so I think that they're evolving their business because they absolutely have to. They see what's working. And so I think the question is really, for me, as sort of why it took so long for so many of these to come to the forefront. Um, and now that they're here and now that they're putting way more of their attention sort of into this bucket, which is not to say cable is going to go away, by the way. I think that right. there are a lot of doomsday um, doomsday scenarios out there. And I don't know that those are correct either. I think that most of the cable networks are just going to have to recognize that the value proposition for advertisers and going into that cable bucket is changing and we're not entirely certain what it's going to look like in the future and so they're diversifying into this streaming space and i think that's really smart whether or not they are the second one first one or first or second one in or the 51st one in i think if they want to be in the content space not having their content available online and not shifting with the taste of the consumer base would be really kind of silly and, um, you know, they, they, they should probably hang it up if they don't want to go into that arena at all, because, you know, anyone who can read any statistical trend line can see that that's where everyone's going. So I think that they'd be a little bit crazy not to be getting in. That doesn't mean that there aren't too many of them, by the way. <laughs> I think yeah. what we'll probably see is some really fall out. Has Asylum changed the way they develop um, with these new streamers coming out? Um, you guys do business with virtually everyone. Have you guys changed um, anything that you do? I think the biggest change to our development model really happened in 2018 when we launched the content group. And that's because we really sort of recognized that in order to develop for all of these different outlets, you, you're, we're talking right now about the SVODs, but even in the in the cable space, the, the existence of the SVODs has made it so that even the cablers are starting to define their brand and their content um, a lot more. Dis they're trying to make it a lot more distinct. And so what that means is that you, your development has to be that much more specific for everybody. And what we really recognized was, you know, we could we could have five or 10 or even 15 different developers, lock them in a room and have them come up with different ideas um, for everyone. But this idea that you would have you know, a finite amount of minds that you're tapping and you're tasking them with coming up with enough um, saleable ideas that are going to generate enough income to run an entire business that you're looking to really grow and expand just didn't seem like a very good idea to us. And so what we did instead was we developed, um, in, we baked into our business model a number of incentives for outside third-party partners to bring their ideas to us, recognizing that they would come with a very specific lens. Um, they'd bring a lot of the creative merit to it. We have, um, you know, a really good track record in the industry. We have a robust infrastructure and um, a lot of experience executive producing a lot of projects. So that was a major shift that we made to our development approach because we saw the way that the industry was shifting and all of the new players coming in and all of the ways that, you know, content has become more and more niche, more and more targeted to specific consumer groups. And if we were going to do that, we knew that we that meant we had to open up our development pool. Um, one of the other things that we've been doing is really identifying creators who we think have a lot of potential out in front of them. And we have been bringing them in-house and we've been building companies with them, for them, with them as the central creator. And that is our alternative to sort of the traditional pod deal. Right. Um, we, we thought we needed that alternative because for us in the way that we operate, that traditional pod just doesn't really, the interests are sort of misaligned from the very beginning. You know, there's a number of recruitment, that person, that producer is a really talented producer who isn't building any sort of roots because they're not, um, they're not necessarily incentivized by ownership in a company. They might have ownership on some of their shows, but that ownership follows them whether they're at the company or not. And so we really looked for ways that we could align our interests so that we could firmly partner with people and they could plant roots and feel like it was a place that they were going to grow. 
and that we weren't just extracting value from them, that instead they were more valuable being in our ecosystem because of the infrastructure we were able to give them and the freedom we were able to give them, but also the comfort we were able to give them because you know most of them don't necessarily come from business backgrounds, finance backgrounds, production backgrounds, they're creators. We build all of the rest of that infrastructure around them. What What is the difference between what Asylum offers a third party like myself um, versus you know, an overall deal um, that maybe another company uh, offers? That's a great question. So under the content group, um, and I should, I should um, say that this is specific to what we do under the content group, uh, which is our primarily documentary non-scripted arm. And so what we do there is we took a look at the traditional pod deals and we, we would do those. And those were sort of overalls in the sense of, you know, you come here for a certain amount of time, so it's a term deal. You get X amount of dollars up front, and then a certain pr- percentage of that is recoupable. Um, and it rolls over year to year a lot of times. You might have a certain amount of uh, development funds that we have to approve a, 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 in some way. And because it's a term deal, you can walk away at the end of it. And yes, you'd walk away with you know your, your lifetime attachment to those shows. But if we turn around and sell um, the content group, you wouldn't get a piece of that. And you wouldn't necessarily be building anything that is specific to your company um, in and of itself, right? So the way that we've changed that is um, we do pay people a little bit um, upfront, but they really have to kind of bet on themselves. They do have the infrastructure resources and and development funds that they would get under a normal pod deal. There is no term on it because we're putting a company together with you. Um, That's a, it's a much bigger proposition. So we're not two years into it and we're having to renegotiate a bunch of stuff or people are looking for a better deal. We're incentivizing them to stay and build their company because they own half of that company. Um, and additionally, we're investing them into the broader, um, the broader group. So they also earn uh, points, which are then redeemed if there is a distribution for partners at the content group or if there's a sale at the content group. I'm curious about your thoughts on this. Do you feel that right now, it's a better time to be a third party producer than it was say 10 years ago. Um, that's such an interesting question. I, I think the answer from my perspective is it depends. So it depends on the kind of producer you are. I think if you have a lot of wildly creative ideas and you want to stay in that creative lane. You don't. You you don't. You don't want to necessarily put budgets together. You don't know what a ten ninety nine is, and you don't want to have to deal with that. You don't want to get <laughs> into things with lawyers. Um, you don't want to have super fun conversations about you know cash flow and projections and but and things like this. Then I think right now is a really fantastic time because there are so many great outlets. And these outlets, as much as as much as a lot of people kind of traditionally complain about them because they have so disrupted and upended kind of, quote unquote, business as we know it. Right. Um, I think that they have also really opened up the world in a way that people maybe didn't initially anticipate. So the fact that you can jump on Netflix and watch things from all around the world also means that your your content um, that previously had been commissioned as like a work for hire by a single cable broadcaster in the United States. And so had to be a very good value proposition for just one population, U.S. population, right? Now, suddenly that that piece of content can resonate with a lot of different people all the way around the world. And as a result, those and those numbers around the world count. So people who are picking up, uh, the SVODs who are picking things up recognize that that's a potential. Um, there are more co-productions on, on content that would be considered too niche 10 years ago because people recognize that if you look at the entire world population who's, who's watching content, this kind of content, you can probably get a good amount of people to watch it. So I think it's great from, the, from that perspective, from the you know, more and more niche um, programming or programming that might be very important to you that didn't that just didn't have a broad enough audience ten years ago suddenly has that audience and I think that we're seeing some really uh, wonderful characters and stories being told you know we we talked a little bit about cultural inclusivity and Black Lives Matter I think that the fact that we're opening up the world this way allows us to make programming that represents people people who maybe haven't seen themselves on the screen before or haven't seen themselves represented in a way that felt authentic um, on the screen before. And so I think that's wonderful. 
I think that if you are a third-party producer who does actually kind of like some of those other things, though, like someone who likes the idea that you'd go to go to sleep knowing that the fact that you have shows employs people, um, the fact that, you know, some people really do like the mechanics of how things work and deal making and negotiating and building an infrastructure, you know, for the entrepreneur um, who's also a producer, I think that today's kind of is really exciting um, because there are a lot of different models out there, but I think it would be really stressful as well. Um, this is <laughs> yes. a tough time to build infrastructure. I think that, you know, there are more and more people getting into the game and more and more outlets, but those outlets are also looking at their dollars and saying like, Oh, I really, I really need to make sure I tr absolutely trust the person I'm giving this to. And so the bar for getting, um, you're getting, holding a contract with a network right now, if you're a third party is really high. So it's not like, you know, 10 years ago or 20 years ago, the kind of wild west of reality yeah. and documentary groups where it was kind of like, you could, you built a company off of uh, a show. I mean, asylum. One, I was, uh, I was just going to say that one show, you could sell one show yeah. and then you were a hot commodity, right? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Right. And you, and, and you were allowed to make mistakes and, you know, asylum, Steve always tells uh, the story. Asylum was really launched off of beyond the glory, which was a, a sports, you know, kind of behind the music for sports. And, you know, after they did that show, they did a couple other things in the space, in this, in the sports realm, but they also were able to like go off and do really ridiculous over the top reality shows that they'd never done before. And they were able to do true crime and they were able to do, you know, and become kind of genre agnostic, which is something that we are still doing today. But I think that that gets a lot harder in today's, um, in today's uh, um, ecosystem. And I think that that's because even though there are a lot of people in, in it, the competition for eyeballs really does make it seem like the commissioners are looking at all of their dollars and recognizing the risk associated with them. Yeah, I, I would agree. It, it's a lot of it's a lot of finding the niche, whether it's a niche producer, showrunner, or it's a niche company that, okay, this is the company that does true crime really well. We trust them. Let's go with them. Mm -hmm. This is the company that does docu-soaps really well. Let's go with them. They do big, huge stage shows really well. Let's go with them. So yeah, I, exactly. I, I yeah, I completely agree. Um, and you know, that's interesting. And just to kind of highlight that, um, and that's really good for those companies when those genres are really hot. 2020 has been a big year for so many reasons. Um, but I think that the pandemic and the shutdown on production that's happened has really highlighted why not having a diversified portfolio, content portfolio is really tough. Because to your point, those companies that are like really great at big events or big stage shows or big, like they're, they're really suffering right now. And they don't yeah. have a lot of different content buckets they can turn to because when they take a smaller, you know, archive driven show out, for instance, that's not what the buyer expects from them. So it's a little bit of, they've got a little bit of a, of a branding problem, you know, in that way, which is just part of the risk if you're, if you go down that road. Speaking of COVID-19, how, how can we speak of anything else? I mean, this yeah, whole year should just be, uh, they should just rename 2020 COVID-19. Yeah, I know. But look, I am very proud of our, of our community, of our unscripted community, and that I feel like we've bonded together. We have worked hard to get back to work and people are doing it safely at Asylum and the content group. What kind of shows are you guys doing? Obviously, you can't tell me a lot, but um, is the company feeling good about where things are headed at this point? I think that we are feeling cautiously optimistic. I, I, I agree with what you said. I've been really impressed by the community, the broader community, and the willingness to share information, um, the willingness to you know, call people up and say, hey, I, I heard you're looking for this, you could try this, or hey, I've got a guy in Texas, or, or this, that, and the other. So I think that that sense of community is really great, and it's part of the reason that we feel cautiously optimistic. No one knows what's going to happen with this disease. I was just listening, right before I jumped on with you, I was just listening to a report about how um, they've canceled a number of seasons for things that go all the way through 2022, including um, uh, um, the opera. 
And I think that that's just really, every time you hear one of those things, it kind of, it just deflates that much more. Sure. But I think when you run a business that relies on being able to go out and capture reality in the real world, A, I think we're having a conversation about how much of that content can be on screen because it's going to be with us longer than we thought. And so maybe there's something to documenting a piece of this and just maybe changing some of the language um, in how we put content together because pretty soon it'll be kind of weird to, to see people without masks or this, especially if you know it's shot in a place that is COVID heavy. Yeah. Um, outside of that, you know, the world is not having a monolithic um, experience here. There are other places, places that are that have really strong production centers who do have this uh, disease under control or virus under control in a way that we do not. And we have been really fortunate in being able to leverage some of their um, availability. So we've been shooting, for instance, in the Czech Republic. Uh, we shot some recreations very early on in COVID. We'd been, we were really fortunate in coming into COVID with a number of shows that had been in post-production where we had probably, I'd say 90% of the footage we needed. Uh, that was an exceptionally fortunate stroke of luck. And we got the other 10% by really leaning on our network outside of the United States. Now that there are more and more places opening up in the United States, we have been working with our network partners, who I think have actually done a really fantastic job of putting, you know, decently easy to read guides that get updated and are vetted um, by health professionals together. We've been following those pretty religiously and on the sh and always aim to have a set that's even more, um, you know, safe, um, has higher safety standards than we're even required to have. And we've been leaning into a number of third-party production partners around the country because we're not traveling a lot of people from LA. We've been tapping into the local scenes, um, you know, ensuring that they'll follow the same guidelines yeah. that we would follow. Um, and we've been really, really um, happy working with a lot of a lot of producers in, in different places. We've been a really big proponent of remote work and local work for a really long time. Luckily, we had a number of producing partners in place in, in, in places like Texas and throughout the South, you know, well before COVID hit. You, you mentioned remote work um, and you had told me that you've had experience uh, previously that kind of, you know, inundated you with the importance of remote work and how that actually can, can help a show, can help a company. Can you talk a little bit about how you have adjusted to this world where everyone's working from home and, and maybe how kind of you already had thought that out and had had experience with it. Yeah. So four years ago, almost exactly four years ago, actually, I was in South Africa on a series for National Geographic and I had already transitioned really sort of out of the day-to-day -day content with the exception of the show and into more of the day-to-day -day company. So I couldn't go to South Africa. I was there for four months. Um, I couldn't go to South Africa and just do the show. I needed to, I still needed to weigh in on all of the company tasks. And so what I did was I worked a hybrid day that was a full day in South Africa and a half day in LA. Um, those are not hours that I would recommend, by the way, but, um, <laughs> but the takeaway was really good because what I really recognized was, you know, when I came back, it wasn't like things had, you know, burned down or anything like that. You know, I was able to stay in contact with my team. I used a lot of the same systems that we're using now because a lot of them were around actually even four years ago, different versions of them slightly, but they were effective. And when I came back, I really thought, you know, I should also state when I was in South Africa, I had a fantastic time working with the crews down there. Um, they've just got a really robust industry. They are um, very, very talented people down there, especially in the um, on the DP side, um, great costume designers, a lot of obviously very you know brilliant sets. We were in and around Cape Town, which you can make look like nearly anything. Um, and, and very solid post-production services as well. So what I really recognized in leaving South Africa was like, well, there's really no reason to stop working with those teams. They're just not in LA, but that's fine. And so we've actually structured a lot of different projects um, that, would, that would be shot in South Africa and other places around the world, Australia, New Zealand, obviously really great places, Eastern Europe as well. Um, but what I really recognized was it was so easy for me to keep in contact with everyone. It was almost more efficient in a lot of ways. And 
we'd had a number of people who were kind of tired of living in LA or didn't want to come into the office as much, sat in a lot, a lot of commutes. And so in the last four years, we've really been structuring what is a remote work policy look like for the company. And for the last two years, we've had a pretty robust remote work policy where you can request to, you can request to go to Spain and work for a month, or, you know, you can go to Thailand as long as you hit your deadlines, because, you know, our, our position on it is we hire adults. We are, we try to make sure that we clearly articulate what our expectations are. If they don't meet the expectations, they shouldn't be a worker, whether they're in the office or working remotely. So we give people a really high level of autonomy and then we hold them to that. Um, and so we have had, even before COVID, a number of people who have kind of taken these, these extended breaks um, from the office space, but still were very much a part of the office, our, our work dynamic. So when COVID started happening, you know, we thought this could be, this could become a bad, something bad. Well, I, okay, I should restate that. A few of us thought this could get bad. Most people thought we were crazy. <laughs> uh, when we got to February, though, um, and then it's just this is just by coincidence. I was actually meant to go to Israel for a couple of weeks in March. And so I was I one of the things I do when I go anywhere, I do this really deep, incredibly deep dive. You would think I was just I, I, completely insane or that I worked in the travel industry. <laughs> I want to know every single thing about a place when I go. Like I'm that creepy person who will like go into the Google map street view and like walk all of the nice. like walk around all of the neighborhoods and see like which neighborhood I vibe with before I figure out where I want to stay. That's um, producing. It's producing one hundred and one. Yeah, there you yeah, go. exactly, exactly. It's like I and I just I just take that skill set with me. Now that I don't produce TV day to day, I have to get my fix somewhere. <laughs> so, um, so I was doing. If you so start was, doing a call, if you start doing a call sheet, then <laughs> there may be a problem. That may be a problem. Uh, okay, okay. You you're not allowed to talk to anyone who went to Rome with me then. Um, yeah. <laughs> maybe a little bit too close to that. But, um, but so I, so I, I say that to say, anytime I'm going somewhere, I start signing up for like newsletters and alerts, and I want to know what's going on in that space. And in February, there was a group of South Korean tourists who'd gone to Israel and this uh, COVID had, had broken out. And that, so that really struck me because I was like, oh, wow, this is not, that's not, you know, it's, it's really migrating, it's moving now. And then because you mentioned, you mentioned I, uh, I executive produced on To Rome for Love. And so we've got a lot of, I got a lot of very deep contacts in Italy. I also was an Italian major, so I've got a lot of friends in Italy. So when Italy got really pummeled with this, I thought there's no way it's not coming here. And so we put together, the post-production team and I had put together um, a a kind of a test week. We were going to have everyone go remote just as a test in the middle of March. And it just so happens that that coincided with the time that COVID was going to hit us here. And when the shelter in place went into effect in San Francisco, I just called the team and said, hey, that that test that we were going to do is going to be a reality. I'm going to tell people <laughs> tomorrow that they need to yeah. they need to take everything they've got at their desk and they need to take it home with them like they're not going to come back here for a lot of months. And so that Friday we did that. We, we checked out all of the gear. We put everyone on remote work policies. We had everyone sign a whole bunch of different, you know, documents for, you know, essentially working from home and, and what that means for them in their life. And at, even then people thought I was insane. But um, that I think it was that Wednesday or Thursday of that week is when the L.A. shelter in place went into went into effect. And um, we so we were fortunate, but it was really just because we were going to do that that test anyway. And now that we're in it, I think what we've seen is probably what a lot of our colleagues at other companies have seen, which is that some people really love it. You know, they might have been introverts, um, not having to sit in traffic for an hour or two hours or even more every single day is like making them that much more productive. Um, And so there are a lot of people who want to kind of stay in this remote work. There are some people who want to come into the office every two or three days. Um, There are some people who want to be in the office, you know, as soon as they can and what we're trying to do in crafting a plan for coming back into the office is craft one that is pretty flexible and allows people to get what they need out of the office. And what we're really finding is people don't necessarily need the things we thought they needed out of an office. Um, that doesn't mean that there aren't needs for spa- shared space and community and things like that, but it doesn't necessarily have to take place in a traditional office. And that's something that we're grappling with now. That. That's my next question is, 
what level of remote work do you think will carry over once we are lucky enough or we are fortunate enough to have the biggest part of COVID pass? I think that there are certain genres that are easier to edit from home than others. So we do a lot in the um, archive-driven documentary space. Those are close-ended episodes. Those do exceptionally well uh, working remotely. We'd actually had a couple of editors uh, working remotely on those before, and it and it's never proven to be a problem. And those are teams that are really thriving right now. Yeah, I think it is more difficult for DocuFollow. I think it's more difficult for those shows where you know it really it really is like let's card all of this up. And we think that this yeah. is episode one. We start editing on episode one. And then suddenly we see, oh, this scene in episode three is great. And we want to grab that. And now we've got to restack everything. And I think that working remotely, it's not impossible for that, but it's definitely a, it's definitely not the most intuitive workflow. So yeah. I think that at least establishing what the first episode or the first season looks like for a lot of those series, that happening in shared space, even if it's just people come in twice a week and review cuts and have, you know, real conversations about what the show is, what the perspectives are, what these, you know, budding characters, what their, what their POV is. Um, I think that that's probably going to be easier to do in person and more efficient to do in, in person. And honestly, just like psychologically, I think that there's a bond that is created on those teams that needs to, that probably needs to happen. Um, so th- that I don't know will ever go totally remote. But one of the things that I like the most about remote is that on those shows where, you know, the content can really thrive in remote uh, circumstances, it allows us to take a look at talent that doesn't live in the places that, um, in the ponds that we keep fishing from. And that's nothing against New York uh, and LA. They're two of my favorite cities on the planet. Um, But I do think that, you know, to loop back to something that we were talking about at the very beginning of the conversation, diversity, equity, and inclusion also means that we have to think outside of our bubbles. And as much as I love LA and New York, they are bubbles. And if we can get editors and producers and writers who are weighing in on things, looking at content, content, by the way, that we largely make for places that are not coastal, depending on the network that you're, that you're working with. um, I think that they'll, that will allow a different kind of perspective in the content that makes it feel more authentic um, and more representative of those groups who we're trying to include. So that's where I say like that cognitive diversity piece is a little bit different um, and important for us to tackle as we tackle the other kinds of diversity that we talk about a little bit more frequently. So I think remote work will open, open up the talent pool a lot. I agree that there has to be some level of joint creative discussion that that is not on a zoom because (laughs) like my, yeah, like I, I, you know, for the first couple months, I felt like I could be creative talking to an editor or another producer on zoom. And now if, if I have to do another zoom, like I just, I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna go crazy. And I, I miss, like, I never thought I would miss being in a room with a whiteboard, like you said, carting out a show or, you know, trying to beat out a format um, with a bunch of other producers. I never thought in a million years I would miss that. But that level of excitement that you have throwing up ideas and figuring out problems is just not the same when you've got 12 people on a Zoom or two or three people, you know, on a Google chat some of us got into the unscripted <laughs> business because we like working with each other. We like working with people and we like that excitement of solving problems and of creating things. And I do miss that. I miss that, um, that interaction. So I, yeah. yes, I, there's days when I'm like, God, it's nice to wake up <laughs> and, and just roll to my laptop and start working. But there are days where I do miss seeing faces and, and you know, interacting. Yeah. You know what else um, has really occurred to me just about what you're what you're saying and what we've used offices for before. So I think that the whiteboarding piece, the idea that we can all like put our heads together and break a story and rearrange it and, um, you know, talk over one another and get that kind of excitement. What's so hard about Zoom is that the tools are just not precise enough yet. 
So if you're talking and then I jump in excitedly, something that you're saying, either because yeah. I want to agree or say like, but, but, what, but what about this? That's like a there's like a total breakdown in Zoom. So people are always on mute. Then it's like you're pitching something into a total void. <laughs> yes. You know what I mean? So I do think there's like yes. an evolution of those products that will help us get closer to what we're talking about. But you're right. It's never going to be the same as being in the same room. And and I, I can't wait for the day when we can go back to that really safely. Yeah. But one thing that I have noticed is so there's that active work time, right, where people are physically like, you know, it, cutting on their avids or sure. or, you know, boarding up stories. But then there's all these meetings that we do. And we're, there are meetings that we do and we're in this creative industry. And what's really funny is in all of these you know, months now of not being in the office, it's really had me reevaluate whether or not that whether or not we ever got that piece right. Okay. Because it's like, why do we have we're this creative industry? We, we, we bring people in to meet with us so we can talk about these really creative things. And we do that like in a boardroom with like yeah. four white walls or like, you know, three, three walls in a window. And it's kind of like, is this the best place to have that conversation? And why are we having this conversation here? Like we live in LA. There's so many, yeah. it's beautiful outside most of the time. Outside of like the three months of summer when no one wants to work anyway. Um, yeah. It's pretty awesome. We could do an outdoor, you know, meeting in December and it would be lovely. So it does make me question whether or not when we go back into the office, we should go back into it the same way, because I think that we're probably stifling a level of creativity by pushing it in indoors into these really sterile spaces. I would agree. Yeah, there, there's nothing that's more stifling than a conference room. Yeah, I mean, and... we have a very nice conference room. I, I, I have to correct that. I have to correct that because our head of production and operations worked very hard in putting all of the things together for our office um, for that conference room. So Patty, I'm not saying that ours is not, ours is definitely the best one there is period, but it's not as good as outside. And let me just tell you pitching a show over zoom. There is like, do you want to talk about some, somebody's on mute and they're, then they start oh. to talk and then somebody else <laughs> tries to react, but they're on mute like that. And then you want to share you know, the, the pitch deck, but then that won't work because of the shared screen and someone doesn't know how yep. to operate it. Oh my God. Like, yeah. Yes. Or it's like, you so. think you, you sent your keyboard up properly so you can just push the button, but then you didn't. So now you look like a dummy. They've literally oh, been yeah. waiting for you to speak for the last five minutes. <laughs> yeah. No, my favorite is the person who's telling the person who's on mute that they're on mute, but they're oh. also on mute. That's yeah. like my favorite because now we're all, now we can all read lips. Because and so we know yes. what it looks like when someone says you're on mute and for them to also be on mute is just that is that is 2020 in a nutshell to me. Yeah. Or the, like, like when you're visiting a show and the most important person, their their Internet signal like is the worst. <laughs> that like yeah. that is when I'm just like, oh, gee, like really like we, yeah. you are the person who we need to hear from and your signal is dying. Like and then I'm yeah. dying inside. Yes. Yeah, so. yeah. You need to be hard. You need to be the one who's hardlined into this. And then they always have to call back in. So they call oh. and they can't see anything. Yeah. It's just like, yes. that's the best kind of pitch. Yeah. Oh, like, God. Okay, yeah. This you is, have to going super well. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. OK. Um, I do want to ask about Audity, uh, which is your, your podcast division, your podcast company. Um, you recently did yep. a deal with Spotify, which is great. Um, tell me a little bit about uh, the decision to open up this uh, this podcast company and what we can expect from that and kind of how that works. Yeah, absolutely. So I think that the first thing I'll say is we had a conversation internally about whether or not we wanted to do, um, when we knew that audio was growing and growing and growing, we were really excited about it. We're, most of us are, are pretty avid, um, not just podcasts, but also audio experience listeners. Um, and so our internal conversation was really whether or not it should be a division of a company that we already had, or if it should be its own company. And ultimately, we made the decision to launch as a full company because the mission at Audity is slightly different. Um, it is really community focused, and it's very much focused on identifying stories from creators who we want to platform in a way that we think is kind of underrepresented. And a lot of our lens for figuring out whether or not it, it's a, an Audity original, I'm using air quotes there, so it doesn't <laughs> yeah. sound as like totally douchey as, as what I just said, but yeah. um, w whether or not it's something that we're going to be focusing resources on is really whether we can identify a really interesting intersectionality. 
so for instance, the one of the first ones we launched um, is called Yas Jesus, and it is a gay Christian podcast. So gay nice. and Christian, not necessarily the two things that you think um, yeah. go together most immediately. Um, but what we real, but what it really is, is this authentic look um, that our two hosts, um, Danny and Azariah, take us on in their journey at both being, you know, members of the queer community and um, being really devout Christians and what that means for them. And, you know, so we kind of look in, in sort of that space. We're also doing one um, with Spotify that is a co-production with a, one of our partner companies under the content group called Big City TV. And that one is a criminal justice podcast um, with Kim Kardashian. And that one really looks at that intersection between race and the system um, and privilege in the system. So that's kind of why that fits into the oddity lens. We're developing a lot with very young creators. Um, part of that's like on purpose. Our, our, head of, um, our head of content is really tapped into young millennial Gen Z culture. But it's also a reflection of our relationship with Spotify and what yeah. their demographic looks like. We thought that that was a good partnership lane for us to um, go after because they were, they were in that very um, young space. So we are looking at podcasts primarily right now. Like I said, um, and this part I can't get too far into, we're also looking at just audio forward experiences. We like to say that the company is audio forward, not audio only. What we've really seen in the data is that people who listen to audio are, you know, digitally native people. They are they get really, really activated when they identify with a, a podcast. So they are willing to go to events. They're willing to do IRL um, events. They buy merchandise. They want to have an experience with the hosts or the talent in that um, in that that come from that audio space in a way that a lot of slightly more passive television viewers um, do not. Is the plan to take some of the podcasts and use that IP to then turn into TV shows, films, documentaries, that sort of thing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think that we're seeing podcasts as a pretty good incubator for ideas like that. Um, a little, they're kind of like ex very extended proof of concept. Obviously, the translation between audio and television is not like um, 100 percent. Things things do have to change. And and I think that in the last six months, we've had like a very real education on on how audio is a dramatically different um, medium. Um, sure. That probably depends on on the extent to which that's true, depends on the kind of project you're doing. But certainly for a number of the ones that we're doing coming right out of the gate, they're pretty different. And that's really exciting. It actually it really reminds me of how I felt when I was when I was a, a really young producer and everything was new to me. Right. Like I remember the first time I put a, uh, a string out together that had like that we put interviews into. And this sounds so completely remedial and basic. But um, remember, I, like, I came out of film school and all I really knew was that I didn't want to work in film because it was really slow. Like yeah. so painfully slow, like the number yeah. of people I wanted to murder because it took three hours to set a light. Uh, it was just I was like, that's not that's no way to go through life <laughs> for me personally. Right. Um, so I was like, OK, let me try this TV thing. But I didn't. It's not like I had studied reality. Um, I hadn't even, even necessarily studied that much documentary at USC. So getting into it and really starting to manipulate um, manipulate always sounds like such a bad word, but it is such a good tactile word moving things around and recognizing the ways in which that struck different emotional chords was like a really big revelation for me. Yeah. The most fun I had being a producer was honestly learning what the toolkit was. And I get, to, I feel like that again with audio because, you know, even though I'm primarily on the business side, something that is true about me is I don't like to, I don't like to have companies or employees who do things that I don't fundamentally understand. I don't need to be as good as, as they are at it. I shouldn't be. If I'm better than them, then we should probably hire somebody else because we should be <laughs> hiring professionals. I'm not a professional, you know, audio editor or anything like that. Sure. But I have been getting my hands dirty, um, just learning, you know, rebuilding a new toolkit. And that's been, that's been really, really fun. Nice. Um, I did want to ask, because you did start as a producer. Shows like Hell's Kitchen, Kitchen Nightmares, Bachelorette. A bachelor pad. I mean, you started yeah. in the field, very similar to where I started. Um, mm -hmm. What was the turning point when you decided, hey, I want to want to go more on the business side. I want to go internal um, and, and be an executive. 
it, it definitely it definitely happened in stages. I had I'd been working at Asylum when it was just an Asylum Entertainment. I initially worked there as I, I think like a segment producer on a show. And then that show came back um, a little while later and I was you know further up the, the totem pole by then and really got to know the company a bit better. And it was in kind of putting that show together for them in post and getting to know them that I thought, okay, this is a company where I feel like I might, you know, I might fit into some of the culture that already existed there. Right. And, you know, they were just really willing to give me opportunities, maybe not give me in the, in the sense of like hand me opportunities. But if I came to them and said, Hey, you know, I was digging around in this and I think we could turn this into a whole different episode, or this is the, there was just a lot of rope there. Uh, So I developed a really good working relationship with with Steve and Jonathan. And then I went back and was working on a show I'd done a number of times while we were waiting to see if the if the show I had done at um, Asylum, which was Addicted, uh, was going to come back for a new season. And then they did what they do a lot of times, which I call uh, network Yahtzee, where they just like (laughs) put all the network executives into a cup and then like roll the dice out and they all go to like different networks. And like now all of your advocates for that show are gone. New people are in. And you're yeah. like, okay. So they were like, well, at minimum, it's going to take a while to get an <laughs> to get an answer yeah. on this show. And this generally doesn't go very well for shows. And that yeah. was a really new concept to me because as a, as a freelance producer, you know, I wasn't one of these freelance producers who really read all the trades or anything like that. Like I was very obsessed with the content. Um, I was obsessed with telling stories. I was obsessed with getting better at the Avid so that I could do more and understand more and relate to the editors better. And so I was really focused on on that and not really the business side at all. But I got an email from Steve where he said, or I think maybe I emailed him checking in and just saying like, hey, what's it look like on Addicted? You know, I'm over here. I'm just kind of, you know, I'm just doing what I have done for a number of years now. I'm getting kind of bored. And he wrote back to me an email I literally will never forget for my whole life. Um, He said, well, if you're bored, you know, I have a job where you will never be bored again. And I like to tell people that is the one promise I can I can definitely say someone has kept to me in life <laughs> because I have not been bored. I've been there nearly eight years now. Um, I always tell people I, I would pay someone a lot of money to be bored for like 10 minutes to just like remember <laughs> what that sensation is, because I have not felt it in eight years. And when I came over, I, I, I was a I was hired as a VP of current. Um, I did not know what that meant. I'm like, I, I will be very honest and say, like, I had no idea what that meant. And as a result, like, I did that job very poorly. I'm surprised I'm still employed at the company, to be honest, because um, I feel like my initial sort of like six to eight months of being being a current executive were, were done really badly. And I think they were done badly because no one teaches you how to be an executive. It's kind of like, hey, this person's running shows now. So if we need to bring someone in, yeah, that's like the pool that you pick from. And then you right. do that. And then every single company is very different. So what they actually need from a current executive is sometimes really different. And so when people don't tell you what you're meant to do, you kind of observe what you think needs to get done. And then if you're a proactive person, you sort of jump in and do that. And so that's what I did, which means like I sort of jumped in and like just did a lot of the work that the showrunner was meant to be doing. And not necessarily because they were bad at doing it, just because that was the work that I knew how to do. And it honestly wasn't until maybe maybe like six months into being there, um, there an opportunity arose internally where they were like, hey, we'd like for you to get more into like the budget and schedule side and just the company side and how things make money when they really broke down like a show budget, how how a company makes money um, on those sorts of things and what things to protect and what things to be on the lookout and what a payment schedule was and what milestones were when I started to understand like what my actual job was like my actual job was sort of in this is specific to current but is to be the person who's in that intersection between company needs and logistics um and 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 making sure that you you don't lower the creative bar in order to meet company objectives and so that was really um, enlightening to me. And I, you know, I, I adopted a much softer touch on the content side as a result, because I recognized that like, oh, that is not actually what I'm supposed to be doing. But it took a real shift um, in my thinking to start to actually do the job I was hired for. And then in getting into the job that I was actually hired for, um, it was sort of like, you know, what I said earlier, 
there was a whole new toolkit to build. And that's me at my, at my best. Like when I, me, the best version of Ryan is brand new territory. There are no rules. No one really knows all that much about anything. And it's exciting. Um, I don't like, you know, like I said, I don't like to be bored. I would pay, I would pay actually a lot of money for 10 minutes, but only <laughs> 10 minutes because after that I become a very kind of, I'm not a good employee. Um, I'm not a good employee probably or person when I'm bored. Um, <laughs> but if there's new stuff to do, like I will, I'll work 24 hours straight. Like I, I just, I find that really exciting. So in my, in digging in and building that toolkit out, I, what I recognized is that there were all these tools on the business side. And so, um, yeah, the last, the last eight years have been really an education in that. And the Steve that you're referring to is Steve Michaels, CEO of Asylum Entertainment Group. How big of an influence on your career has Steve Michaels been? I mean, honestly, I think I probably can't overstate it enough. Um, you know, I think Steve was someone who recognized something, some, some level of potential in me really quite early in my career. And I'll be honest in saying that I don't know how many other people, not just people I'd worked with, but people more generally would have A, recognized it and then B, promoted it. And so I, I, you know, I really give him a lot of kudos for that. He gave me a lot of rope. I made a lot of mistakes. I think that I brought to the table things that he didn't expect me to bring to the table. And so he's always, he's always kind of like, been curious about what's coming next um, because I will definitely, you know, come to him with some, some like scheme, uh, some, some idea he hadn't, he hadn't thought about and, and that a lot of people had maybe aren't thinking about. Um, so I always come from sort of like slightly left of center uh, with those sorts of things. And I think he likes and entertains and enjoys that and feels like there are things he can work with in it. Like I said, I can't, I can't overstate enough how much the opportunities that he has been able, um, has been willing to give me have really helped me grow. Um, I'm a person who has to grow. I don't, you know, I'm not very good at following all of the rules in the exact order. I question all of those things. I was my high school valedictorian, but I was probably also the student that, that um, was the most divisive because there were like teachers who absolutely loved and adored me and teachers who totally hated me, hate me to this day. They will still say <laughs> things. My brother still lives in that town and still, still there is bad blood between me and a couple of those teachers. And it comes from my like constant questioning of authority. Also, I was kind of a jerk. Like truthfully, I look back at that like 17 year old version of me and I was like, oh my God, thank God we'll that person's yeah, tamed. We'll have to get into that on the next, the next <laughs> podcast. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Totally. But Steve saw that kind of um, rebellious side and I think really was both amused by and, um, and and enjoyed it and thought there was there was value to it. Nice. All right. Well, I, I just like to end the show with talking about what to watch, recommending a few things to the audience. Um, I just saw All In, the documentary on Amazon about voter suppression uh, directed mm -hmm. by Lisa Cortez and Liz Garbus, Stacey Abrams. Obviously, the the star of that definitely recommend that for people to watch specifically because of the election. Awesome. What What about you? Anything that, that you're watching or any any asylum shows that are airing uh, that people should watch? Well, I'm gonna, I'm going to start with one that actually isn't an, an asylum show, but that I have literally been um, yelling from the rooftops. Everyone needs to see, which is uh, Love Fraud on Showtime. Okay, I think that that is such a fun. I mean, not fun in the sense that, you know, the premise of it is is essentially a lot of women. And I'm not going to name how I, I can't give a number to it because I don't even know the number. A lot of women um, are essentially conned by the same bigamist. And they make a plan to find him and take him down. And Ooh. there is a an older female bounty hunter in there. <laughs> I think her name is Carla. And Carla is my spirit animal. She is so fantastic. Um, I want everyone to see her. She is so amazing. Um, the show, though, I think is really kind of about this idea that you can take back your power and that there are these sociopaths out there who prey on people and the problem is with them and not with you necessarily. Nice. So I think that I think that, you know, given everything that's going on right now, it's kind of a it's fun to watch this guy uh, sort of get his comeuppance. So I highly recommend that one. Um, and then we do actually, because 2020 is such a tough year, I do want to recommend a show that we have been, um, that has been airing on TLC that 
um, we did at Asylum under our uh, the content group banner with Big City TV. It's on. Um, it's called Doubling Down with the Doricos. You know, a show about a family with multiple multiples. They have fourteen kids, but the family is just so. Uh, loving and kind. And I think that it's such a good break from all of the hostility and um, tension and stress that uh, 2020 has been for, for so many people. Great. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a TLC fan. I did out daughters for them. So they're good. Nice. They're good people over there. Um, yeah. All right, Ryan, thank you so much. I know you're always busy, so I appreciate the time. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Really. This was fun. And that's going to do it for another edition of No Script, No Problem. For everybody listening, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe, download, and rate it with five stars. It's available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and tune in. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and on Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. If you want to write a question because, you know, you got questions about reality television or any of this stuff, email me, no script, no problem podcast at gmail.com. If you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks to Mike DeLay and Real Voice LA for the audio hookup. And thank you for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.